Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Clinical Updates and Strategies for the Long-Term Management of Patients with Multiple Sclerosis. This is podcast number one, which is going to be a clinical trial update of the Actrum Actrums 2020 or the MS Virtual 2020 meeting that was held in early September. This activity is supported by an independent educational grants from Biogen and Bristol-Myers Squibb companies and is provided by Academic CME. My name is Dr. Fred Loveland. I'm the Saunders Family Professor of Neurology uh, and Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai in New York. I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Friedman, who's Professor of Medicine at the University of Ottawa and a Senior Scientist at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Fred. So this was the first time we've done an Actrums Actrums virtually, um, but I thought they pulled it off very well. Uh, the the um, background they use for moving between the various programs, uh, I thought was really quite eloquent. Uh, and the program was, was very good. What were your thoughts on it? Well, I'm, I'm kind of torn because I'm on the executive, as you know, and I was well aware of what we were doing, but we were all very leery about the uh, whole organization and how it would come off. And about a week before the meeting, the executive all held uh, a very important uh, briefing, during which time the people who we hired to do the virtual actually gave us a little preview and a run through of the lobby and negotiating what you're gonna see and even the backdrop, I don't know if you caught it, the backdrop of that opening virtual is, was Washington, D.C., which is exactly where it was supposed to be. But many people didn't even notice that. And then when you move into the, the, the plenary, you know, you, it's like you're going into an auditorium. There's like these fake heads all around, and then the screen pops up in front of you. So it gave you some kind of a, a sense of, a, of being at a meeting. I have to say, I was glued to my computer most of the weekend, uh, and I probably saw a lot more than I would have ever done at mm -hmm. to a meeting, because as you know, these meetings tend to be a meeting of meetings, and, and nobody did that this time, because we were all kind of uh, on our own. And it's kind of neat to be able to watch a plenary uh, sipping your coffee and eating your breakfast. <laughs> so, so as not a member of the organizing committee, I thought it was very well done. I think the only thing that was missing was the piped-in cheering from the NBA bubble. Um, so we may have to think about doing applause next year, at least. Yeah, well, there were there were a few little glitches, uh, but it was a lot of preliminary work, as you know. A lot of the lectures were pre-recorded and then only viewed live at the meeting. But the Q and A that was actually fantastic. The faculty were all there; they were able to interact. They had 
the chair people challenge them with questions. You had the ability to pose a question on the website. Some of it got answered right away. Some of it got answered uh, orally. So that banter, um, that we didn't lose that, and, and, and it was caught very well. Okay, so let's discuss some of the things that were presented there. Uh, we're going to discuss some of the clinical trials. Although there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of new clinical trial data there. A couple items, but there were some interesting concepts that were brought up. And one of them, which was part of the opening lecture of the meeting, was on the, the multiple sclerosis prodrome, um, which is an idea that's been coming to us from Canada. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, I thought we we got a sense a few years ago. Uh, I'm trying to remember how many ectrums it was, but there was this uh, wonderful paper uh, by an Argentinian group where, that were looking at children with MS, and they had discovered that these kids, their school grades for like three or four years prior to their actual presentation were falling almost every year. And the whole story was that it was affecting these kids from a cognitive standpoint well before any physical declaration of the disease, suggesting that there's probably a significant prodrome that we just haven't really tapped into. And there may be other signs in a, in a population that would maybe indicate the early signs of MS. And so I, I think that um, we have some very strong neuroepidemiology people in Canada uh, Helen Tremlett, uh, who is a professor of that department in the University of British Columbia, Ruth Ann Marie and the University of Manitoba, they have been uh, manipulating and accessing public uh, databases in, in a way in which to be able to extract useful information. And so this whole idea of the prodrome uh, came up because they could see that these individuals who ultimately turned out to have multiple sclerosis were utilizing more healthcare services, tended to be more depressed, and and you know all, none of none of which would be as an individual saying, oh that's that's MS, but when you put it all together, you could see how the disease was kind of building up, and we all know that when the patient has their optic neuritis and we do the MRI, there's a whole bunch of lesions everywhere, and sometimes we're overwhelmed with how much is present on that first MRI. Clearly, they've been accumulating this stuff for a while. How come there was no indication of it? Well, there is an indication. And, and there was one of the um, uh, papers, I think, last year at the Academy, and then shown again as part of Helen's uh, opening lecture, that uh, one of the biomarkers, which we'll talk about, uh, I think, a little bit later in this, uh, in this uh, venue, um, was neurofilament lights. And there was an army study that was published where they showed uh, that the patients, uh, the, the army personnel, before they ever got the first symptoms of MS, their neurofilament uh, light levels in their serum was considerably lower than their age match controls in the population. Again, an indication that there's something cooking well before we, it ever manifests. Did you say neurofilament light levels were lower or higher? Uh, they were, well, I'm sorry, higher. Yes, I'm sorry. The, the controls were lower. So they had evidence of damage by virtue of having more uh, neurofilament light dumped into the serum. Pardon me about that. Yeah, that's okay. So, so one of the things that we've been wrestling with is what to do with these radiologic isolated syndromes. 
which are the individuals who present having had an MRI for an unrelated reason, like a headache or a bump on the head, and it looks like MS. And the MS prodrome, of course, the kind of things they talked about were like skin abnormalities, psychiatric abnormalities, cognitive issues, urologic problems, pain, anemia, none of which, as you kind of just said, would point you necessarily to the nervous system. So how do you think we're going to be able to integrate that? It's a tough one because you're not going to send a patient with any of the symptoms that you just mentioned for an MRI of the head, unless you have some sense that, well, I don't know what else to do. Um, let's, let's get an MRI of the head. I guess you know, some people think that way. And then, then you're stuck with this history and an MRI that often looks very much like MS. And we're seeing these patients, so what do we do about them? And I think that when you could look at collectively all the information that Helen presented, there's a real sense that uh, of urgency there that maybe we should be treating RIS if we've truly eliminated other causes. But, you know, there's two ongoing studies in the United States and Europe that should answer that question in the next year or so. Yeah, I worry about being able to get an answer, but perhaps, and, and even anemia was seen ahead of time. It's, it's very funny. Um, that, that makes no sense to me from a, from a mechanistic MS standpoint, unless uh, there are other uh, features, that, uh, other conditions that are the comorbidities, which we know exist with MS, that, uh, that, that just happens to go with that comorbidity. Yeah, because we don't actually see much in the way of anemia in our untreated MS patients. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned neurofilament light. So let's let's turn a little bit to that because that's been the the lead fluid biomarker right now in, in looking at, at following patients, right? Our, our real lead fluid biomarker is one that you're very fond of, which is the ultraclonal bands and the spinal fluid. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't give us uh, dynamic information, right? That's sort of dichotomized, yes or no. But we're hoping to get some dynamic information from neurofilament light. You alluded to the fact that it was higher in these military recruits that went on to develop MS. But how do you feel about it in terms of, of using it on an individual basis? Well, you're, you're talking to somebody who's a very strong advocate of this neurofilament light. We've been using it now. We finally have the machine in Ottawa. We've been uh, doing the measurements for all of Canada, actually, if they want it, uh, and certainly from our own group. And we've, we've published extensively in the last year uh, um, uh, a paper that just came out in the spring with our prognostic, so that if you looked at, at patients um, who we followed for 20 or more years, and I've collected their baseline serum and spinal fluid, and we looked at the baseline serum, and looked at their neurofilament level, and if it was high, it really predicted that those were the individuals, regardless of what we did to them, therapy-wise, they more of those patients progressed to EDSS four or six, more of them turned to SPMS, they all had more activity. And similar groups now have reported out in several papers uh, this past weekend, showing very, very similar data that Baseline neurofilament levels, uh, if they are higher than what would be expected for age-matched controls, are an indication that those patients have a more aggressive form of MS. 
and are more likely to have early progression uh, or evolution to say SPMS. What they fail to really show is how to treat those individuals. But if the sense is that these are higher risk profile patients, this is part of the whole idea of personalizing therapy, then your choice of therapy might be to go for a higher efficacy starting a drug than, than the usual way of escalating from a uh, first line upwards. Um, so from a prognostic standpoint, I think that uh, uh, the data is very solid and has correlated even better than uh, brain atrophy. In fact, uh, I think Maria Piazzolani in one of her talks again summarized the fact that that the serum neurofilament light uh, can actually predict brain atrophy better than brain atrophy predicts brain atrophy. So I think this is a very important early measure. Now, on you, you've hit a very important point here is how to evaluate the individual patient over time. So it's one thing to look at clinical trial data, and there was a lot of that presented, where it was very clear that those patients who in the clinical trial benefited from therapy, and you could put in whatever therapy you like. I think I saw one paper with ocalizumab and other ones with some of the newer other agents. Then the neurofilament light goes down, and 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 uh, certainly more so than say the placebo or the active comparator. And so it's moving with the primary efficacy outcome measures. And in that sense, in a clinical trial, you're you're getting the sense you're really kind of driving down axonal damage. But if you had to follow the same patient, just like we have the same issue with brain atrophy in an individual patient over time, how do you do that? Um, the metric is inaccurate for, for an MRI standpoint. I think we're a bit better on the, um, the neurofilament light. Now that most people are using a similar platform, uh, not necessarily the brand name, but the similar Samoa platform, and they're all measuring within a few picograms of each other. Uh, what magnitude of change in an individual is, a, is an important one? What would it warrant a change? And I don't think we have the answer to that. And we're, we're, we're in the process of actually running a trial where we're trying to determine just that, how much of a change is important? Is it a 20% difference? That's what we're using right now, a 20% change, because you know it's the same one we use for the, for the MSFC kind of metrics, it, and it was a very arbitrary choice. But we'll know a lot more in the coming year, and, and there's been a lot of work and effort put into serum neurofilament light, as well as a few other uh, novel biomarkers that are kind of moving with it. Yeah, we had a, a study looking at the CompuRx group and the neurofilament light did a good job of predicting who was going to relapse, but in the short term, and it was kind of wearing off over time. It was similar to baseline MRI, maybe a little better, but the combination of the two was actually best. Hmm. And it, um, does, it does get worse as you get older because as you get older, the neurofilament goes up anyways with age. And so it became less sensitive when you get into the progressive forms of the MS. And maybe we need a different biomarker. Some people have reported out that GFAP, for whatever reason, um, is a more marker, is a marker of, uh, of damage that is better uh, in the progressive group of patients. And I, I know we saw that with, um, with one of the uh, um, saponamide studies. 
so that's and that was from Jens Cooley's group in in uh, in Switzerland. And and the biotin study, you know, which was a really almost purely progressive population, um, the neurofilament light was flat over the course of the study, which was kind of disappointing because, in a sense, yeah. it's telling us more about inflammation than it is about what we thought was axonal degeneration. It's, it certainly comes from the axons, but you've seen all the pathology and most of the damage to the axons we know is way up front earlier in the disease. And then as, as you move into the progressive phase, then that inflammatory damaging um, uh, signal to the axon is, is, is just reduced. And, and that's, you know, Bruce Trapp showed that in, Hundred years ago, in, in the you know his paper on on looking at axonal butones, they're all in the early transections uh, seen in the acute plaques and the chronic smoldering packs don't don't have that anymore. So you've already lost those axons. You're you're not going to see as much uh, neurofilament release at that point. Some people have suggested moving to the other neurofilament. So there's a, there's actually three levels of neurofilament: there's a medium and high and a low and the the light one, I mean, the light one is one we've been measuring, but uh, some people are suggesting the neurofilament heavy chain may be more indicative of damage in the more progressive stages of MS, and that's being looked at, but that hasn't been examined to the extent of the light chain. Okay, so let's look at a, a few clinical trials. Let, let's start with a, a, a new dihydroorotate dehydrogenase inhibitor called Vitoflutamus, or IMU838. What do you think about that? <laughs> I don't know. There's been a lot of hype about it, but uh, looks like teraflunamide to me. Uh, I wasn't uh, enthralled. It was a phase two study. Uh, it had an effect at reducing gadolinium enhancing lesions and new T2 lesions, but that's what we do in a, in a phase two study to give you the impetus to go on to a phase three study and look at a clinical outcome. Some phase two studies actually, even though they're underpowered, have seen an effect on relapse rates. And, uh, and this particular study um, did not, uh, but that's, that was true also of the phase two teraflutamide study, but there was, you know, there was a signal. I think that in this particular case, we were a bit stunned, at least I was a bit a little surprised that the higher dose had less of effects than the, than the low dose, but maybe, it, it just works a little differently, but it was almost a negligible effect on reducing relapses, even though when you listen to Bob Fox's presentation, there was a caveat that they didn't do statistical analysis on anything other than the MRI metric. Yeah. But I, and I think there were some, some safety differences. Very minimal. Uh, they had less of an effect on liver functions than what had been known for teraflutamide. So there may be some advantage to the molecule in that sense. Uh, and they, the touted explanation is that uh, the drug is a little bit more specific and doesn't spill over to uh, DHODH in, in other areas uh, where teraflutamide might. But th that's all hearsay at this point. I haven't seen any data. Okay, and how about uh, mesitinib? Well, isn't that an interesting study? Uh, I mean, really, um, you know, that drug's been licensed for 
treating mass, I think it's some kind of tumors in dogs, isn't it? It's like uh, they have mast cell tumors or something like that. Um, I, I'm, my daughter's going to be a veterinarian, so she, she about that. So it's for, it's, it's for mast cell, but um, certainly it's targeting something as a tyrosine kinase that uh, is different than the, than the other tyrosine kinases that we can maybe talk about later. Uh, and, and in a sense, that study went right like the biotin study, right, for progressive forms of MS, like purely progressive, non-inflammatory forms of MS. And surprisingly, uh, you know, it had a, not only a, an effect on, on some imaging, but it had an effect on, on EDSS. Uh, and it, it looked rather convincing. It's a, it's a large effect in, in, in a big group of patients. What did you think about the second study, though? The, the, well, this is the one that Patrick Vermesh was presenting. Oh, he had two different doses. Um, 4.5 milligram and there was a 6 milligram dose. I think the six milligram, uh, I'm trying to recall that, it didn't have the same effect. It didn't have any effect. Okay, yeah, okay. So it's, it's you know, interesting that there may be some enzyme kinetics with the, the tyrosine kinase that is a dose-dependent effect, and that's not unusual. Some enzymes, you know, you, you keep increasing the dose, you can actually inhibit. So uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure how did, how did he explain that. He, he ignored it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it's just hard to know, um, you know, what to do with that. And the DSS effect uh, was not significant. There was a bunch of different, actually, and I didn't understand from this from the presentation all the different ways they were analyzing EDSS. Um, but there were some where he felt there was a medically significant effect, but it wasn't statistically significant. And so I don't know quite what to do with that. I do hope this gets studied further because this is a major unmet need for us. Oh my goodness, it's, uh, it was unexpected that they would even see that to the degree that they did. And, uh, and the fact that they had, uh, um, you know, uh, this, this is a drug that in the early phases we wondered was even going to be well tolerated. It had a lot of uh, GI side effects and there was a question if it would be able to uh, be used uh, successfully in a phase three trial. So uh, 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 although some studies that go into progressive MS may be enough to try to let the drug be licensed, I think there are enough questions about this particular one that would warrant um, another study, unfortunately, to corroborate the, the results and explain some of the phenomena. I suspect that's probably right. Uh, let's let's uh, go over and talk about that dosing with anti-CD20 agents. Mm. I think this is really stemmed from a, um, a few thoughts uh, over the years, and mostly from sub-analysis of, uh, I believe, both the oratorio and the opera studies, where it looked like body weight uh, may have conferred a difference in outcomes. And I remember seeing that in a poster about a year ago. So it looks like for some people, uh, it's not enough. You're not giving enough ocrevus. Uh, and then for others, um, it might be too much. And so should we be doing a higher dose? Now, the only concern I have about that is, of course, if you remember the phase two study years ago, um, there was a death in that high dose group uh, from a some kind of a severe 
immune reaction uh, to the body, but nobody really had explained it. But now I think they're, they're trying to see if, in fact, they could uh, go up front and get even a, a greater effect. Uh, and a lot of people who want to use uh, anti-CD20 as an induction agent are looking for that extra effect up front. So I, I think that, you know, this study, uh, the study is just going forward. It's not, uh, it's not something that has started yet. But uh, there's also been some studies where they showed reduced dosing in, in um, mainly using rituximab, that you don't need to sustain high dosing. And we've been talking for years that there may be an opportunity to get a response from an anti-CD20 drug and then kind of pull back a bit and maybe use uh, you know, B-cell counts to decide whether or not you should be um, increasing the dose again. I think I remember Tom, Tom Weiss using the, the whack-a-mole analogy that as the B-cells come up, you, you, would, you would hit them again with the, with the dosing, but otherwise to pull back. So uh, I think both, both lower doses and high doses may be appropriate in the right individual, but exactly who to do that with, I'm not, I'm not uh, confident that I know. So you raised this issue of personalized medicine, we're talking about neurofilament, and, and this here kind of struck me as a way of approaching it too. The, the lower doses, the fact that they were getting pretty good results with delaying the redosing of rituximab until the CD20 count started to come back. Um, and, and I think, especially for something you're going to give long term, there was a certain appeal to that. So I hope to see that picked up further. I do agree. I, I just think getting the companies that make these agents to cooperate to do the studies is going to be difficult and I suspect we're going to need to do them outside of, uh, of, of having pharmaceutical support to, to do that because it means using less of a product, right? Yes. So let's talk about something else that's, that's going to be a part of the meeting and that is COVID-19 and neurological complications and, and specifically neurological complications that are of interest to physicians who specialize in demyelination? Well, we're going to be seeing a lot more of that in uh, September 26 with the, there's a whole session planned for COVID. And I can't, uh, even though I may have seen some of the abstracts as I'm on the review committee, I shouldn't be telling you anything about that because uh, we're not supposedly have seen it. Uh, but there, there's, uh, there's been a lot of uh, interest, as you can imagine, with all the different products, every, everything from RMS patients more likely to get COVID just because they have MS, are certain agents putting us at higher risk of getting COVID, are certain agents putting us at less risk of getting COVID, are agents um, going to change the course of COVID if we got it as an MS patient? Is it going to be worse? Is it going to be better? And then the last question is always, if a vaccine becomes available, and of course we're all hoping that is the case, will that product that we're taking interfere with such a vaccine? Uh, and what, what are we gonna have to do to um, ensure that the vaccine will take? And, and a lot of this, well, the last question, of course, I, I don't know uh, that we have any answers, uh, but we did have some, um, I remember seeing something about hepatitis vaccine and anti-B cell therapies showing that the anti-B cell therapies clearly inhibited 
an antibody response to the hepatitis B vaccine. So if, it, if we draw some, some uh, similarities from that, I think um, if a vaccine does become available, we would almost certainly have to put a halt to the anti-CD20 for a period of time, allow the vaccine to take, and then possibly restart the, the vaccine, the, the anti-CD20 later. And, and that came out. From the various therapies that we've seen, um, uh, we've seen, uh, and, and we actually published some studies on, on teraflutamide showing that we thought that the course might have been even better uh, than the patients uh, who did not take drugs. Uh, and that was perhaps based on some antiviral properties of the teraflutamide. That we've seen other drugs like uh, the S1P receptor agonists and even cladribine um, possibly protect patients from getting that very severe immune reaction that has led them to spend extra time on ventilators. But you're going to see a lot more of that in a couple of weeks, probably at the, uh, at the specialized COVID presentation at the late breaking session. Yeah, so you've hit upon the things that, that have moved along in sort of a dynamic feature with this. One was our patients wanting to know, are they at increased risk of the infection? And I think the evidence to date, of course, is that MS doesn't put you at increased risk of infection. Uh, our group here in New York, when it was studied by our senior fellow, Yunnan Zhang, found that the major risk factors in MS patients were the same pretty much as what was going on in the general population, age, obesity, and disability and comorbidities. And smoking, right, yeah. Yeah, and, and so that's been of interest. I think that you highlight the fact that we need to look and we'll need larger numbers in this on the individual responses uh, of people who are on the therapies. Uh, the important message you want to get out to people is stay on your therapy. Uh, we'll deal with the infection if it occurs. And so we're getting that. It's going to be interesting what happens with the anti-CD20s. That's the one that looking to raise an issue, but we need more data to see that. But then just in the last week, we've seen this issue of a case of transverse myelitis occurring in the setting of, uh, of a vaccine trial. Um, and then when they dug a little deeper, it turned out there was a case that they're calling multiple sclerosis early on in the vaccine trials. So, so there's, there's going to be some interesting challenges for us moving forward, and they're going to keep us busy as to figuring this out. And especially what you highlighted, this issue of, of who and how we're going to immunize people. Uh, when they're on their therapies and how we're going to get around for that. And this may actually force the escalation on us. Well, especially for the anti-CD20s. Uh, I think, you know, some of the immune reconstitution treatments uh, may be actually great because you've already had them and, and you may be well away from any more treatments, uh, getting protected from those early treatments and not requiring anything else. Uh, as we expect the vaccines to roll out near the end of 2020 and into 2021. Well, I think we're coming to the end. I think we can agree that, 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 that the Actrums, Actrums group pulled off a, a very successful virtual meeting with lots of, of interesting material. And while it would be nice to have seen everyone in person, uh, it's good to have these learning opportunities uh, moving forward. So my many thanks to the learners who have joined us for this clinical updates and strategies for long-term management of patients with multiple sclerosis. This is our first of six podcasts and it's a clinical trial update on Actrums, Actrums 2020. 
Remind you that this activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Biogen and from Bristol Myers Squibb Company and is provided by Academic CMA. Many thanks to, to Professor Mark Friedman for joining us for this. And I hope you all be able to listen in to the rest of this series. Thank you all. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for inviting me.